The Deviation Podcast. Welcome to the Deviation Podcast. My name is Paige, and today Matt Matlock is with me, which I can't even tell you how excited I am about this. Um, He was in the Air Force as a combat controller, then he went on to go to UC Berkeley, and um, is now a very loved husband and is a very soon-to-be father. And he's agreed to sit here with me today and... uh, talk about how all of this has come to be and welcome and thank you for being here thanks for having me Paige. yeah glad to do it so to start would would you mind just kind of telling me how it all started where where you're from how it was that you decided you even wanted to join the air force mm-hmm. sure uh so i'm from uh the central valley in california from uh, a small kind of half town city called modesto um, and so graduated high school and I was not a great junior college student at that time. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and so I had dropped out of school about a year and a half into it and I was working for actually a friend of mine. His family owned a beverage uh, distributorship uh, in the Stanislaus County area. And so I was working for them, um, driving like a Snapple truck and delivering beverages for them. They, they did Snapple and Red Bull and a bunch of other um, different stuff like that. And so I had been doing that for a little bit. And I guess as an 18 or 19-year-old kid, it had paid the bills and it was, it was okay. But um, I was just at a really weird impasse in my life where I knew that something needed to change. I just didn't know what it was. Um, and so, you know, I tell this story quite a bit, um, but I think that it's important to always call out because I feel like there's always a defining moment in somebody's life when they're a really young adult and whether or not they choose to recognize that it's a defining moment, that's a different story. But almost everybody has that kind of fork in the road point where you either go left or you go right. And there's usually some sort of a backdrop of information or, or some sort of experience that steers that decision. So I'm working for uh, Stanislaus uh, Beverage Distributorship at the time, and I'm working with this um, gentleman named Brian who's in his uh, mid-40s, uh, and we're delivering to uh, a local um, a local Save Mart. It's, it's a grocery store in the, in the local area there. Uh, and, you know, we're taking cases off the truck, and for anybody that's ever done a job like that, it's, it's essentially manual labor. I mean, it's, it's hard work, and in the Central Valley in the summer... It's even worse because it's a, it's 102, 103, and you're you're lifting these 20 to 30 pound cases of, of drinks, um, and so it's towards the end of the day, and we're in like kind of the loading dock area, and uh, we had just you know offloaded like you know I want to say 30 or 40 cases or whatever it was, and uh, Brian just you know my my counterpart he just looked really disheveled and he just looked miserable. I mean, he was like sweating and we were both sweating, but like he just, he didn't look good. I could just tell he looked either irritated or in pain. There was something up. So we got our paperwork signed and we got in the truck and as we're driving off, I'm like, are you okay, man? Like, is everything all right? Like, you seem like, like something's wrong. And like, he starts the truck and he just kind of sits there and he's like, he takes a drink of water and he's like, Matt, he's like, I'll be honest with you, man. He's like, I'm in my mid forties and he's like, you know, I don't have enough money to like take my wife on a trip or take time off or, you know, spend time with my kids. He's like, you know, we're paycheck to paycheck. And he's like, it's, uh, you know, this is not like a fun and glamorous life for me. He's like, it's, it sucks. He's like, my back hurts. You know, I, I'm unloading cases every day and I'm in my 40s. And he's like, I don't have money saved up. I'm going to have to do this until I'm 60, 70 years old. And he's like, you know, and I think this is more just kind of like the rant of an old man. I don't think that he necessarily, not an old man, but somebody that was older than me at the time. Uh, I don't think that he necessarily knew the impact that he was going to have on me. I just think he was just bitching, for lack of a better term, at the time. 
um, and understandably. And so he was like, you know, you need to do something with your life. He's like, don't end up like this. And he's like, I'm not happy. I don't have like the, the kind of financial stability I'd like. And he's like, you're young, you're smart. Like you don't get comfortable doing this, do something else. And I, for whatever reason, you know, as an 18 or 19 year old kid, usually when adults talk to you, nothing really seems to resonate, but that, you know, it sunk in with me for whatever reason at the time. I think it just, I think it was timing. I think I knew in my mind that I had failed at school and uh, I actually had failed at a relationship at that time. Uh, of course, young relationships all usually fail anyways, but I thought it was kind of the end of the world at the time. And so I just, I knew something had to change and I think that it was just good timing for me to hear something like that. So yeah, I mean, I, I went home and really kind of thought about it and, and kind of let his words, I guess, marinate. And uh, this is right around the time of the Iraq invasion. Um, and so I was watching television, I think it was on CNN, and uh, there was a reporter that was embedded with uh, special operations teams, uh, and they were doing some things, and they were talking to these guys that were blurred out faces, and they were kind of talking about the missions that they were doing. Um, and it just seemed interesting to me. And I think the part that really seemed unique to me was that there was, there seemed to be a lot of pride in the way that, you know, these guys presented themselves, but the way that the, I guess the news was kind of talking about what they were doing. And at the time, this is before, you know, regardless of what your political affiliation is, uh, this is before we knew if there was WMDs or not, we all thought that that was the right decision at that time to go in. And so we were very proud to be Americans at that point. And watching these guys, uh, I just, I, I got a glimpse of what excellence looked like. And I think until that point in my life, I hadn't felt that. And I had, a, I had like a, a, a thirst for it. I wanted to feel what that was like, to be looked at like as being the best at something or being like accomplished. Uh, and at that point I was a failed junior college student. I think that, you know, my dad and stepmom at that time had even said to me, like, I, not that they had given up on me, but I think that they were like, oh, school's not for everybody. And that hurt inside because I was like, man, am I stupid or am I like not going to be successful? Am I just, you know, destined to be this really below average person for the rest of my life? And so that was floating around in my mind and then, you know, talking to Brian and then I saw the stuff on CNN about like the invasion, everything that those guys were doing over there. And so I think I had an idea in my mind that I wanted to do something really special. Um, so yeah, I, I went down to the recruiting depot and for anybody that's ever been to those, it's, you know, most of them have each branch has like a little office or whatever. Um, and I knew at the time that I for sure didn't want to be in the Navy um, I didn't want to end up on boats, regardless if I was going to be a SEAL or whatever else I wanted to try and do. I didn't want to end up on a boat. It wasn't for me. I get seasick. So um, that wasn't uh, going to be an option. So additionally, um, I had spoken with some people in the local area. Um, this is before I was had any interest in even joining that were in the Army. And they had always basically kind of complained about the culture and the environment and how like they got really crummy gear and they stayed in really bad locations and it just, it didn't seem like a great supportive branch to be in. Um, and so I was kind of between the Marines and the Air Force and of course this is, you know, complete lack of information at the time in terms of what I understood each branch to be. Uh, I just knew that, you know, specifically for the Marines, they were definitely revered and they still are. As like, you know, if somebody says they're a Marine, they're a Marine for life. And that's, you know, there's a lot of pride that goes along with that. So I think that was the first kind of initial exploration. And I went in there and, um, you know, the line to talk to the recruiter was like five or six people. And I think the, uh, the recruiter himself was a pretty big dude. And he kind of barked at me like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> Something like that. And so uh, I ended up walking out. And I said, okay, well, maybe I'll just come back later when there's not so many people. And so I went into the Air Force uh, recruiter's office, and um, it was just him. Um, and so we started talking, and I kind of told him a little bit about, like, you know, me and what I wanted to, or what I thought I wanted to do and what I had seen on the news. And, um, and so he actually ended up pointing to this poster, which I have somewhere in a box, somewhere in my belongings. But it's... Uh, 
it's these guys that are like skydiving. That's like kind of like it's in four quadrants. One quadrant's like skydiving. One's like these guys are like kind of like pulling security and they've got camo on, they've got weapons, and one's where they're scuba diving underwater. Just it looked really cool. And I said, I think that looks, yeah, I think, I think that looks like something I want to do. I don't know what that is, but like, let's, I want to learn more about that. Let's talk about that. So, yeah, I mean, from there, I mean, I learned a little bit more about the job. It seemed really interesting, although extremely intimidating because to that point, I haven't, I hadn't really done anything like that before. And so, um, I mean, I, I played sports in high school and stuff, but I mean, this from a physical standpoint it was going to be a really daunting task, but, um, you know, I, I knew in my heart that I was like ready for some kind of a challenge like this. So, um, yeah, I, I decided to do it. I signed up for the job, um, and did the physical test and passed and, um, went on to basic and, um, yeah, I mean, training for a combat controller is typically, uh, around two years, so 24 months. Um, mine was a little more extended. I got injured. I broke my ankle on a static line jump. Um, and then, um, may have broken my hand in a bar fight on the graduation night of Marine combatant dive school, which I went to, but that's a different story. So <laughs> ended up being about two and a half years for me for the whole pipeline. Uh, and I was an active duty combat controller by, uh, around 2006 time. So, uh, signed up in 2003 and got on to my first team, uh, at Pope Air Force Base, uh, in Fort Bragg, North Carolina in 2006. Uh, yeah, did six years active duty total, did two deployments as an active duty combat controller uh, with the 21st Special Tactical Squadron. Uh, and then in 2009, I decided to part ways active duty, but I still wanted to try and kind of keep my hands in it a little bit. And so switched over to the Guard and uh, did another six years there and did a deployment with them and then got out in 2015. So and went to Berkeley and now I live in the Bay Area and have a wife that's pregnant and a, and a beautiful dog over there that's sleeping and um, so yeah. So where all did you deploy? Uh, Afghanistan, yeah. Okay. Uh, that was the, the total of my experience. Uh, anymore, I mean especially with the, the active combat con uh, controllers nowadays, there's guys with Africa deployments and Syria deployments and Iraq and for me I just I went to Afghanistan uh, three times, usually uh, between six to eight months at a time so what made you want to become a combat controller well that's a great question um, when I went into the Air Force office and I talked to him it was kind of a choice between combat control and pararescue in terms of like the traditional special operations jobs if you will and pararescue for the uninitiated is is more of a personnel rescue very um, medically focused um, personnel in, in the military, very specialized at what they do, but um, their job is to essentially keep people alive. Uh, and I just didn't have that instinct. Growing up, I never wanted to be a doctor. I never wanted to work in a hospital. I just, that wasn't kind of my thing, and I knew that. So the other option was combat control, and you got to talk to airplanes, and you got to go on these reconnaissance missions, and uh, it just, it, it kind of struck a chord with me more so than pararescue, so... And as daunting as it all sounded, it sounded more exciting than it sounded daunting? It's a mixture of both, I think. I think it's like starting a new job or having a really big impasse in your life and not really knowing what the outcome's going to be. It was extremely exciting. I was ready to take on a new challenge and honestly just become a new person. I knew it was going to change me for the better. And so I was ready for that. But I was, um, I was also scared of failure. I was really scared of it. I didn't know how I was gonna, um, if I was gonna equal up to my peers and if I was gonna be um, good or up to the task of like making it through the pipeline and was I physically gonna be prepared or mentally prepared, I didn't know. So, um, and I think the unknown's always been kind of scary for me. And so that was, you know, that was, I was a little nervous going into it for sure. I mean, you had, you're in a program that takes two years. It takes mm -hmm. you two and a half years because you have two injuries, which mm -hmm. right off the bat makes it that much harder. Um, and then, like, how, how did you stay solid through all of that? Like, how did you stay motivated and keep keep yourself going with it all? Um, 
I was a big fan of kind of like poster board material and not necessarily like physically putting things on a poster board and quotes and stuff like that. But I think that I just kind of recalled hearing people tell me I couldn't do something or, um, you know, recalling the times that I had failed and essentially whether it was true or not, it probably wasn't because I had a very loving and supporting family that would have helped me and supported me if I didn't make it through. But in my mind, I created this idea that this was it. I had to do this and that I had no other options. There was nothing else waiting for me and that this is like my last opportunity. Again, I don't know, you know, that's probably, that was probably fictitious. Now I look back at like the support system that I have in my family and how great they are. But at the time, that's what I used, you know, I mean, you hear stories from great athletes and people like that, that create these things in their mind where, you know, they become enemies with the person that they're facing against. And for me, my enemy was failure. And I just, I used everything that I could um, to motivate myself and get myself through those tough times. So, I mean, there were definitely tough times in the pipeline, physically, mentally, whatnot, that you go through where you definitely question yourself. But man, especially when you get injured and you're kind of in this holding pattern and you feel like you've been training for years and you, you know, becoming this thing that has been talked about and talked about seems like just this remote, it doesn't seem very tangible. It just seems so far off. And so it's, it's hard to stay motivated in those times. And I think that there were definitely times where I was, I was questioning whether or not this was still something I wanted to do and continue. But um, I think at that point when I had gotten injured, there was just so much time invested that it would have been absolutely silly at that point right. to stop. So, um, yeah. And just for those listening, if you're not aware of this, the program that, that we're talking about has about an 80% attrition rate. So the fact that he made it through with all of those other factors is, I mean, it's, it's just huge. And again, and this, we talked about this before we started recording. I don't know what the current statistics are today. Um, it may be a little bit more generous than 80%. I don't know. But um, I do know that when we went through, it was around that. And that when we started the orientation course, which is a two weeks like an indoctrination type of course for us, we started with 40 some odd people. And I think out of those 45 ended up making it all the way through. So it's a big difference. Mm -hmm. Yep. So now when um, moving to a, a different time um, mm. in, in one of your deployments, um, there was a particular deployment that was more difficult than the others. Yeah, it was interesting. My three deployments were all pretty different and they all seemed to kind of escalate off of one another. And so the first deployment uh, was in 2007, 2008, uh, and I was out at uh, Fob or Camp Chapman, which is actually, for anybody that's ever seen the movie, Zero Dark Thirty, it's the same CIA base that they had in there um, that got, you know, where the CIA operatives got blown up. Uh, and so uh, I was there with an ODA team and we were doing uh, direct action. And so we were flying in helicopters and we were basically going after what they'd call JPEL targets, which were joint priority execution list. So they had like kind of the top bad guys that you'd want to go after. And so we'd kind of pick these guys and build target packages around them. And then um, we'd go after them. And so every week, week and a half, we would go jump on a helicopter and go to a village and then go after these bad guys. And so the, well, the funny thing about that is that deployment, we didn't take any contact. I mean, it was a lot of fun jumping on helicopters and I mean, it was kind of like the pinnacle of getting to do special operations stuff. Like you're in blacked out helicopters and working on NBGs and I had gunships and all this like great air support. I mean, and I lived in a great camp with like, you know, all these really high speed people. Um, so it was really cool. And then my next deployment um, was a little bit more kind of out in the boonies, if you will. It was in the Zabul province. Um, and it was a little bit more of a traditional kind of I guess you could call it move to contact, but it was more just kind of going out and spreading the good word of Jeroa uh, or just, you know, letting people know that, you know, there is a government and that we're trying to help them, et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot of what we did in that second deployment is what they call mounted operations. We were in gun trucks. 
Uh, and so I was in the back of a gun truck on a 240 with an open back Hummer. Um, and we would just drive to different villages. And uh, so there was some actually uh, troops in contact situation, some engagements during that um, during that uh, deployment and uh, didn't take any casualties. We'd, we got in a couple pretty good firefights, but um, nothing where I was like really like, oh man, I'm wondering if I'm going to come home. And so it was interesting because then, you know, fast forward to my last deployment, which was in 2012, 2013. Um, and then we were doing a much more traditional special forces mission, which is like, you know, foreign internal defense, which is where you go in and you train local forces to then kind of combat either a large government or an, an enemy force. And so that was the idea is we were doing this mission called Village Stability Platform. We went in uh, in Wardak province. Uh, and so we were in the Chalk Valley and we were basically living with the villagers. I mean, we had power, but we didn't have a lot of niceties. We didn't have running water. Um, not a lot of great food and uh, it, it was tough because we were in such a bad area that a lot of the resupply helicopters would only fly at night in there and then to boot a lot of them didn't even want to fly then because it was just it, the risk was very high for them to get shot down but what would I mean if they didn't fly then then it's just what you're shit out of luck you don't have food or water it, I mean it, there was a couple of times where we got kind of close to like you know water was getting low food was getting low and we had to make a lot of calls and, and really stress the importance of getting people out there. And it was, again, poor timing because these guys, and I'm not going to name the unit, but the unit that was in charge of the aviation at the time, um, they were ripping out of country. They were getting ready to go home. And I think that in their minds, they were like, you know, why are we going to go fly in the Jock Valley? We've got 20 days left. Like, we're, you know... Something needs to be broke on this aircraft before we fly tonight. I don't know if that's actually what happened. We used to joke about that, but um, we definitely didn't get as much support as we should have in that area. Um, and so it was tough because, you know, the mission itself was to go out and to try and make good with the villagers and stand up this um, local police force. And, you know, at the same time, nobody seemed to really care for us. And every time we, we left the wire, we were in contact within probably 500 meters of leaving the gate, I mean, especially the first two weeks, I mean, we were basically taking contact on the way out and on the way back. Um, so it was just very different. So if you look at the spectrum in terms of my experiences and my deployments, I went from, you know, this really cool, sexy mission set flying on helicopters on a CAA base, and that was my first deployment, but I didn't really have like a ton of engagement with the enemy. And then Second deployment, you know, some cool stuff, gotten some firefights, kind of lived out in the boonies, but still had like running water and stuff. And then that third deployment was more just kind of like out in the middle of nowhere, not a ton of support uh, and not a, a ton of love lost with the, the locals and stuff like that. So did you still did you still like being part of the Air Force at that moment or did it ever cross your mind? Like, why am I here? This isn't like. This isn't working the way I thought it would be working. I don't have the support I need. It's not It's not going as well as I, I would hope or expect. I think that the idea behind that mission set would be better executed with more resources. And if it was just better thought out, to be honest with you, it wasn't well thought out. I think that they put a little bit too much emphasis on the special operations teams. And quite frankly, it overextended not just combat controllers, uh, special, you know, special forces teams. And, you know, we went from having 10, 15, 20 guys in theater at one time to having 50 guys in theater. And now guys are going on deployments for six months, coming home for four or five months, and then going right back out because the demand is so high. And we're having all of these like remote locations that we now want filled with special operations teams. And one of the primary tenets of special operations across the board, doesn't matter what job it is, is you cannot mass produce special operations forces. And so at that time, we only had these small subsets, combat controllers, 600 guys, you know, uh, ODAs or special forces, a few thousand and SEALs, a few thousand, same, you know, so, but there had, you know, the, the demand is so high that it just didn't add up. And so... From that perspective, I was I was a little bit frustrated. 
Um, the mission itself, I understood it to be more terrain denial than anything. I think that, yeah, we were there to try and get people to understand that there was a semblance of government and that they were a part of it. And that, you know, we wanted to stand up a police force for them so that they could be safe. And I don't even know if they wanted that. And, you know, that's a different conversation. Afghanistan is such a tribal area. I don't know if they'll ever get to the point where they're able to recognize any kind of government. We wanted them to. Um, you know, I, I was about trying to help people that maybe didn't have um, the best of circumstances or they didn't have access to things that people normally did. But at the same time, it just felt all for naught because these people did not want us there. They didn't want help. Um, so that was frustrating. Um, it was exciting. And then when you start taking casualties and, you know, um, guys go home and, and they, you know, that's it. They're, they're, they're gone or guys, you know, get hurt permanently, you know, uh, it, it, it was just frustrating because I guess and this is just my perspective. I'm not going to speak for anybody else's experiences. From my perspective, it didn't seem like what we were doing in that area specifically was extremely valuable. And um, so it got frustrating. And I think it got more frustrating when we started to like, take casualties and stuff and, and seeing that we weren't really making so much headway. And it wasn't for a lack of effort on our end. It was... We were doing everything that we could. I mean, we pushed the line out as far as we could in terms of terrain denial. and But we were only, you know, 12 ODA guys and Air Force Combat Controller. And then we had um, about like 12 or 13 infantry guys with us um, that were there to help kind of provide security and then also help beef up our numbers and stuff for going on patrol. So realistically, all well and all told, you know, it's 30 people maybe that are trying to clear out this whole valley. And it's just... It just didn't make sense from that perspective. It wasn't well thought out. It wasn't well executed. Um, and it was kind of an error on, on leadership's part in terms of thinking that that would work. So, was there Were there any instances during that time where, I don't know, there was a particular thing that happened that made you feel like, okay, well, this is the way all of this is going and there's this one piece where I've at least made a difference in this one person's life and they're... Like, maybe I've made some headway there a little bit. No, honestly, never. I mean, and it's unfortunate because not even specific to me making a difference, but with anybody that makes a difference or makes headway with an individual, if an individual is able to kind of see the forest from the trees, so to speak, there, you know, like a local Afghan national, that's a person that's probably going to go out and get an education and then leave. Like, they're not going to stay and help, you know, Afghanistan become this thriving nation. And that is really the, the, the part that is crippling them is that the, the most talented and the most uh, educated are not sticking around. And for, for good reason. You know, who's going to want to stay there? Um, and so you continue that, that whole cycle of the, the tribalism and uh, extreme factions coming in and taking over and running the government. And it's going to probably continue to be that way. Um, so, yeah. And you talked a little bit about casualties and that there hadn't, you hadn't lost any of your teammates in the two prior missions, mm -hmm. but in this mission, it sounds like you did. Yeah. So we, there was a lot more action involved in this last deployment. Like I had mentioned, um, we were taking contact almost on a daily basis for a while there. Um, it was obviously a really bad area. Um, and it was a matter of time. I mean, the first two or three weeks that we were there, we were, we were doing really well. Honestly, we were making pretty good headway. Um, and the team that was there before us, they had just utilized different tactics. I'm not going to pick apart what they did. Um, their tactics were to kind of stay out of the green zone. The green zone's kind of this lush valley, lots of orchards and trees. And so... Um, the Taliban had a lot of freedom of movement in this area because you couldn't see them. And the team that was there before would stay on the high ground and they would engage the enemy that way. We decided to go into the green zone and fight these guys directly and it completely threw them for a loop. They didn't expect it. Um, and honestly, we were kind of taking them to task. We were giving them the business for about two or three weeks. Um, and then, yeah, we ended up... Um, there was an operation that came in. They realized... 
what a hornet's nest essentially this place was. And so they started bringing in these other kind of commando teams, if you will, to come do direct action. And then there was a casualty on that mission with that team. Um, there was a guy uh, from uh, third group that had gotten killed. Um, and so I think everybody kind of realized, and the, the, the amount of, and we were involved in that operation too, but the amount, the, the kind of contact that was happening in those engagements, it was like, it was crazy. It was like up close. It was sustained. The, like these aren't guys that were just paid to come and like, you know, ramble off like a couple of belts of PKM and run off. These were like true believers. These are people that wanted us out of the valley, out of the country. Um, and so when that happened and we took that casualty and that team took that casualty, I think we all kind of like, we're like, wow, this is like a little worse than what we had thought. And so that operation had ceased. And um, as a result of that operation, um, there were some areas that like had gotten destroyed um, that the Taliban were using as fighting positions. And so we had called in airstrikes on those positions. And so we had gone to those villages to make right with like kind of the, the village elder and the, all the people that were part of that village. Uh, and so, yeah, on that mission, uh, it was on actually on October 6th, we ended up going out and we ended up taking uh, casualties. We had um, two guys that died and then um, three other guys that got um, wounded. And then one guy who was our interpreter ended up dying later on from um, wounds that he suffered from that day. So, uh, so yeah, it was, it was a pretty rough day. And I think that was when, uh, we realized kind of the, the area that we were in and kind of the environment that we were trying to operate in. And so, yeah. How did you, so what, like what happened next? So October 6th happened and what did, like, were you, when did your deployment end? Uh, so I had gotten into country September 22nd and then gotten out to my camp, uh, like a day later. And then a day later, I was in my first troops in contact, like the 24th. Jeez. And so, yeah, I mean, the 6th happened right, you know, after that, essentially. Um, so I had a whole deployment to go after that. Um, how did you just, like, I mean, aside from physically survive that, how did you mentally survive that? Um, well, I think humans are pretty adaptive people. I think that most people are going to survive. And I think that in order to even get through the kind of training that we went through, you have to be a mentally tough person. You've got to be able to compartmentalize and be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so I had experience there. What I didn't have experience in is the, the, the grief of, of watching another American die. I'd seen partner forces guys die. Not that that's less tragic in a way. It just, you feel less connected to it, I guess. Um, but to see guys that you work with or guys that you may consider friends die right next to you, that was just different. And so, um, it, it was tough to be honest with you. You know, the next 24 to 40 hours were extremely hard, um, to try and clean your kit off with, you know, all the blood that's on your kit and like having to like clean that off and, um, you know, get all your stuff ready to go and go back out. It's, it was tough to saddle back up, I'm not going to lie. Um, and then that's always in the back of your mind. You know, the rest of the deployment, you're essentially, you know, I was, when we were on patrol, I was always kind of like keeping an eye out for like a good piece of cover because you never knew when you were going to take really accurate, um, accurate fire. So, um, yeah, I mean, the rest of the deployment, it was tough. And, it, and it, um, it didn't sustain at quite that pace for the rest of the deployment, but it, you know, there was definitely some really um, hairy engagements that we still had after that. Um, but I think the thing that gets you through, and I think that, you know, any guy that's been through circumstances like this uh, will probably say the same thing. It's the, it's the dudes that you're with. Like, the guys that you're with are just through your brothers. And, um, you know, military guys tend to have a very dark sense of humor. And I think that your sense of humor, at least for me, carried me through that. And... Um, that's not to say that I didn't come out completely unscathed and, and okay. Um, but I think that I was able to kind of make do with the situation at hand and do the best that I could, um, at my job, because I knew at the end of the day, my team really depended on me to do my job. I was there for a specific skill set, and I was the only one 
who really could do that job. And if crap hit the fan again, I needed to be focused and be able to, to do that in a, in a timely and effective manner. So I think that that probably also kept me pretty focused. So, so what were, was there, was there any particular instance that just stuck out as being hilarious and wonderful with, with your teammates that help you keep going? Um, there were a few really funny moments. Um, we did some really weird twisted stuff. We did, uh, I don't think I want to say this on the podcast. <laughs> Let's just say it involves hot sauce and really inappropriate areas on the body and sprinting up a hill um, and seeing who could last the longest doing this. Um, so there were things like that. Um, I mean, and then there was even more grotesque stuff where I think we were helping uh, the Afghan local force there build a checkpoint and we had been doing it for about a day and a half. And so most of us were out of kit at this point. And I was urinating in front of the truck. And I heard a really loud smack against the truck. And I thought they had shut the door. And it was actually a sniper that was shooting at me. And he was trying to shoot me in the head. And so I, I heard it the first time. I was like, what the hell? And I just thought it was somebody inside the truck. So I kept peeing and I, I heard it again. But this time I kind of heard like the snap. And I was like, oh, crap, we're getting shot at. So, I mean, it's it's gross, but, like, at the time, like, my pants are down. I'm running back to my kit, trying to, like, get myself back together and back into my pants and get my stuff on. And, like, it, it was kind of humorous at the time, laughing, because it was like, here's this guy trying to shoot at me, and, like, you know, I'm fully exposed, and I'm like, you know, I don't have any kit on. My radios aren't on. I don't have a weapon in my hand. I'm like, this is like the worst time for this, something like this to happen. So, I mean, in a really weird, twisted way, that was kind of humorous. But um, so little things like that, you, you just, you find levity in really dark moments. And I think that's what gets you through. So, oh, yeah, because I mean, your your job is is intense, to put it lightly. I mean, can you just explain a little bit about what your sure. just average duties look like? Yeah, so for the uninitiated, the combat controller uh, is essentially the special operations equivalent of some of our sister service special operations teams. So your Green Berets, um, your Navy SEALs, MARSOC, um, same kind of level of training, if you will. Um, and so our focus is to bring in air power into their environment and their mission sets. And so uh, a lot of the times, most of my missions were with um, Green Beret teams, ODAs, uh, Operation Detachment Alpha teams. And so my job was to call in air support, close air support, um, whether it's from fighter aircraft or from rotary wing, gunships, um, but also call in um, air, or air redrops or for resupplies at the base, um, um, call in medevacs if guys got wounded, um, control helicopter landing zones for personnel that were coming in and out of our base. Um, and then in different mission sets, um, outside of doing that stuff with the ODAs, we do things like um, jump in and seize assault zones and do reconnaissance missions and things like that. So to I guess to kind of wrap it all up there is essentially we are a special operations asset that is highly trained in bringing air power to the special operations fight. Um, so we are trained stateside, typically, organically, kind of within our Air Force units, our special tactics units. And then once we get overseas, we're farmed out to these teams, whether it's a SEAL team or a MARSOC team or an ODA team. Did you ever feel overwhelmed? I mean, I know you're, it's an extensive training process and you're, it's your job, so you know it incredibly well. But at the same time, there are so many things because you're calling in airstrikes, but you also have a gun and there are also people shooting at you. Mm -hmm. So was it ever just like, how was that? Um, it, it gets overwhelming, but I think that our training was so good that we are able to work through what you call priorities of work. When you're in the field, priorities of work are really simple stuff. Like what's the most important thing you need to do right now? Probably clean your weapon. Cause if your weapon's not clean and you take contact, like your weapon's not going to work after that, what do you need to do? Like usually your last thing is eating, you know, like comforts are your last thing. So 
that doesn't necessarily, those individual line items don't carry over into a troops in contact situation, but the idea of prioritizing events and activities does. And so I had experience in doing that in training, and that's always something that the instructors and the cadre are very big on kind of, you know, instilling in you is understanding what needs to happen right now and what can wait. Um, and so that was kind of how I tried to do my job is I knew that I was there. Yes, I could shoot a gun and I could jump on the 50 and I could, you know, shoot a 40 mark, mic mic and do all that stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, if I'm not on my radio, I'm not doing my job. Right. So that was priority number one for me is um, establishing communications with the aircraft, making sure that they had safety of flight and making sure that they're all deconflicted because a lot of times you have multiple aircraft. And so you're working as an air traffic controller at that point. You're making sure that they're stacked up at certain altitudes and you're making sure they're conflicted with each other. And, and setting up kind of standards and procedures to where, okay, we're going to fly in this certain pattern, but when I call you in for an airstrike, you're going to come in from this direction, and maybe we're going to have this aircraft go off to this area so that you guys are deconflicted. So those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about right off the bat is, okay, who do I have in my stack? Who do I want to start employing munitions immediately? How do I get them deconflicted? Are they going to be safe? And then in doing so, when they employ their munitions, are we going to be safe? Because uh, that's the other end of it is when we're dropping casts and we're doing, you know, calling in gun runs and dropping uh, JDAMs, you know, we, that smells horrible. I'm sorry for people that, you know, this is probably a horrible radio, but my dog just like, lit a <laughs> tremendous fart and it like smells like a Guatemalan YMCA in here. Um, anyways, a Guatemalan, oh. a Guatemalan YMCA. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try and work through this because I'm telling you about compartmentalizing and I'm getting like distracted by my dog's farts here. So, um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's essentially prioritization of tasks and it's making sure that you're keeping your guys safe. You're keeping aircraft safe. You're being lethal in the process. Um, and then, you know, you're trying to provide fire support with your own personal weapon at the same time. So there's a lot going on. And then, you know, add on the fact that if you are taking casualties or there's people that are getting injured at the time, now you're thinking about setting up a, a, an HLZ and bringing in a helicopter and giving them all the necessary information they need to come in and pick up right. that guy. Um, you're also coordinating with the ground force commander who's also having to relay information to people kind of in the rear, if you will, at Bagram and Jalalabad and all these different places because they want to know real time what's going on. So you're providing him information. Um, and so at the end of the day, it takes really like somebody that's able to communicate and somebody that's able to prioritize. And thankfully, I've always been really good at communicating. I've always been a pretty articulate person. I've been always able to kind of explain things, uh, not in a really overcomplicated level, just in a, in a manner that's concise enough, uh, but detailed enough to where people understand what I mean. And so that carried over into this job, thankfully. So, How did you, how was like, getting back into civilian life for you? Like, how did you decompress from that? Because if that's your day-to-day, -day, going into civilian life and having... I mean, that's just got to be a whole whirlwind. So it's interesting. Um, and it's always... That's one of the most common questions that I'm asked, typically by civilians, um, especially people that I work with, is like, what was your transition process like? So as I had mentioned before, I did six years active duty, and then I switched to the Guard. Uh, I went to uh, the 125th Special Tactical Squadron. Uh, in Portland, Oregon, and I was a part-timer. And what that means is essentially I would go to drill. Traditional drill is one weekend a month, two weeks a year. Um, our unit was a little bit different. We had people all over the United States and the world for that matter. And so we did drill once every quarter. And so we would do like five or six days at a time. But I was still a part-timer. And so when I wasn't doing that, I was going to school and then I ended up doing a contracting job. Um, for a government uh, agency. And so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 part of my transition process happened there. Uh, and then I was kind of uh, re-inundated into the lifestyle of being a combat control because combat control is a lifestyle. It's even when you're in the guard, it's a lifestyle, but when you are living and breathing it day to day downrange, it's just different. It's your whole life. It's, it consumes you. It's all you, and it has to be. I mean, it's, it just, it requires every ounce of energy and focus that you have. And so I think I, I had initially gone through a transition process when I went into the guard and I was kind of doing the civilian thing on the side. And so 
I had kind of gone through that and I was, you know, re, I was kind of reintegrated back into society. You know, I, you know, felt pretty good about who I was as a non-military member. Uh, and then on that last deployment with everything that had kind of taken place and, um, my perspective coming out of that, I think it was, it, it was definitely a tougher transition for me. Um, and I just, I dealt with it differently in terms of, I really just didn't want to give myself excuses in terms of not like, you know, my big hang up was finishing school. It was always something that really loomed over me from before when I drove, when, when I joined, you know, I was a failed junior college student. Uh, and it just always felt like some, this dark cloud that was over me and coming back from that last deployment, I just felt like there's no excuses because there are dudes that basically don't have that choice to not do something anymore, you know, and you have that choice. You have that choice to pursue your dreams. You have that choice to go out and put everything on the line and maybe fail, but at least you have the opportunity to do it. Um, and so why not at least try? And so I, I kind of had that mindset leaving there. Um, so that was probably like the first part of my transition process was understanding that I wanted to kind of do things in their memory, but more in their honor, like in terms of they're not able to do this and I need to do this. So yeah, you have to continue living. Yeah. Was that always the case or did you ever falter with that? Um, I mean, you have low points. I think anybody anywhere has, you know, it's, it's peaks and valleys. So there are times where you're feeling really good and you got a little momentum behind you and you, and you're kicking butt and maybe you're getting promotions at work or you're getting straight A's at school or your wife and kids are getting along really well, but you know, life is always going to throw you curveballs. And it's never going to be a straight road. Uh, and One so, thing you can count on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's Murphy's Law, right? So, yeah, I mean, the low points were tough for sure coming back uh, from the last deployment. I think that um, there were times where I just, uh, yeah, it's not necessarily that I didn't know if I could do it. It's just I just felt really bad about myself and I just... It was, it was a really odd, difficult process. And then, you know, going to college in the Bay Area, and I was kind of on my own at that time. Um, that was tough, too, because I, I don't feel like I was surrounded by people that shared my perspective, understood my experience. Um, I mean, you know, I'm 32 at the time. I was 32 going to school, and these are people that are 18, 19, 20 years old. I just didn't have a ton in common with these folks. And so that was tough to feel like you're kind of alone. Uh, and so I think that was, a, that was a difficult part of my transition journey. Especially when you had just been in a team environment where you are with people that are like-minded who've been through a lot of the same things and that supportive. you've been through. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and supportive. Because I think when I ended up going to school, it was a little bit different. It's, you know, academic environments can be competitive. And so... Um, and then throw into the mix that, you know, these are folks that haven't had the same experiences, which is fine. But um, it's nice to be around folks that, that understand. And, you know, I, I was actually a part of um, a group there with a, a UC Berkeley veterans group and nice people. Um, you know, most of those folks hadn't had the same experiences either. Though. So I, I felt very like an odd man there, like kind of like a, a sore thumb, if you will. Um, and I just didn't feel like I had a network and I didn't feel um, overly supported. And it was tough because academically it was a challenging school. And um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the top schools, mm -hmm. period. Yeah. And then eventually that somewhat gassy dog over there yeah. uh, came into your life. And how did, how did that even start, really? Yeah, so <clears throat> when I was, you know, at Berkeley... Uh, I was in my first semester, and I think any junior college student that's ever transferred to a major university can tell you it's 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 an uphill battle that first semester. It's big difference going from a junior college where you're working hard and you're probably crushing it, and you're getting four or you're getting somewhere close to that, and you're you're doing really well, and you feel strong in your coursework and the stuff that you're doing, and then you go to somewhere like UC Berkeley, and it's you know the top students in the nation essentially, and 
the coursework uh, is equivalent to the level of students that are there. And so, you know, it was, it was definitely tough from that aspect because I haven't experienced coursework like that before. And so I think that was initially tough. And then going back to what I just said, I, I just didn't feel like I necessarily fit with anybody there. And I felt very alone on this journey and I was still kind of battling some of my demons from my deployment. Uh, and so the stress of school and feeling kind of a little bit more alone, um, it was just kind of a dark time for me. So, um, yeah, at that point I knew I was kind of depressed. Um, I was taking anti-anxiety meds, um, that had kind of started to peter out at the time I was taking Prozac. And I had, I guess, I don't know if this is a medical term or just some term that a doctor had told me, but I had like the Prozac poop out where I basically had been taking 20 milligrams, 30 milligrams, 40. And I kept upping because, you know, it would stop to work. So it would stop working. Um, and then it got to the point where I was taking about like 110, 120 milligrams or whatever it was. And it was, wasn't working. And I was like almost like a vegetable at the time. And so I stopped taking it, which medical personnel will definitely tell you not to do that. Um, and so I was not in a good place by doing that and I knew I needed some help and I had talked to a couple people uh, that were a part of not only the campus uh, like therapy team or whatever, but also went uh, through the VA and talked to somebody. And I had two people in one week that had said, hey, you know, from everything that you have told us, it seems like you should benefit from a couple different programs. Have you ever thought about, you know, looking into getting like a companion dog or a, a service animal? And, you know, at that time, I didn't really know much about that. I, I just knew that there were dogs for people with like, you know, that were blind or missing limbs or, you know, people that had peanut allergies or whatever. So I didn't know that there was necessarily a, a big thing for, you know, veterans with post-traumatic stress. So um, it was just weird, the timing of having two separate people recommend it. So I thought, okay, my, maybe somebody's, you know, the universe is trying to tell me something. So... Uh, I went home and I did my due diligence and I, you know, I grown up with labs and I knew I loved labs. So I typed in on Google, I said, you know, um, labs, veterans, post-traumatic stress and, um, labs for Liberty is the first thing that, that had come up. So, um, got in contact with Joan and, uh, she was really supportive and, uh, very encouraging, which is what I, I needed that at the time. Um, you know, I don't think it was something that. I necessarily knew I needed. I knew I needed something at the time. I just didn't know what it was. And Joan was very encouraging. And knowing a little bit about my story at the time, I think she recognized how much I would benefit from uh, having an animal. So, yeah, I mean, it was uh, a couple weeks of talking with her and, uh, you know, getting to know each other. And then she started sending me pictures of a, of a litter that they had and they had identified a puppy. And she said, you know, I really think you'd... you'd benefit from having one of these dogs. Um, do you want to go forward with this? So talking to my family and I decided to move forward and ended up getting Willis. Um, and yeah, he's, he's a black lab. He's three and a half now. Um, and he's been an absolute godsend ever since. So how do you feel like your life has changed since, since he's come into it? Yeah. Um, I feel like I was a little bit desensitized coming back, not in like a Hollywood way where I'm like got the thousand yard stare and like I'm not able to connect with people but I just didn't have that over I don't know I just didn't feel like a loving connected kind of I, I, I felt like very kind of disengaged with people and I you know and maybe that part of that was my experience at Berkeley in terms of feeling disconnected with people there as well but um I just didn't feel affectionate, loving. Uh, I didn't feel like I could appreciate things that I should appreciate, whether it's nice weather or a good grade in a class or things going well in another area of my life. I just, there were, I, things would happen and I was not having a reaction that I wanted to have. So you're I was just like, kind of like numb? Numb. And, I, and it was really frustrating because growing up as a kid, I was always really happy-go-lucky and I was always joking and... I didn't have that anymore and it's not like I was just like this miserable person to be around but I knew inside of myself that I wasn't the same person um, and so I think with Willis he slowly kind of brought that out of me I mean it's hard not to love that dog he's 
uh, amazing. He's extremely loving. He's cuddly. Um, yeah, talking about <laughs> you, buddy. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, he requires your attention, which, you know, a lot of people, I think when they think of service dogs, they think this dog executes these tasks. It's, it helps you put on your socks, helps you, you know, turn on the lights. Yes, dogs can do that. But that's not like all that they're supposed to be. Um, they're not robots. And for Willis, for me, was more of an instrument of love. He broke me out of this shell uh, and got me to the point where I was able to have a new lens and look at things a little bit differently. And I think in growing with him and the bond started to kind of uh, become stronger between him and I, I started to love him very deeply um, as not only an animal, as a friend, but like a family member. Um, and then I think that started to bleed over into area, other areas of my life, whether that was doing well in academics or enjoying the weather or enjoying time with my family or meeting my now wife. Those are things that I was able to then appreciate that I wasn't able to necessarily appreciate before. Um, and it's all thanks to Joan, their family, and, and Willis. So they kind of helped you remember how good it could be to live again. For sure. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, part of it is, at the end of the day, that's, that's a dog and he needs to be fed. He needs to be taken out. Um, he needs exercise and he needs attention. And that's good for somebody that can become a little bit of a recluse and crawl inside of themselves and want to shelter themselves from society, which I definitely wanted to do at times. It, you're not allowed to do that because there's this creature that's depending on you um, that loves you unconditionally and that would take care of you to their own detriment. They would kill themselves to basically take care of you. And so in knowing that, I think that you force yourself to do the same thing for them. And I think in forcing yourself to be uncomfortable and do that, it opens you up. And I think it makes you vulnerable again and you're able to access parts and emotions that you necessarily weren't able to access before. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's incredible. Um, people ask me regularly if it's hard to, um, to give these dogs up once we, you know, once we train them and things like that. And that everything you just said is why it's like this hard because it's, it's so valuable mm -hmm. and it makes a difference. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that I wouldn't be here. I'm not going to be somebody that said I had suicidal idolations and all these things. Um, but I did know that I was not in a good place. I was in a pretty dark place at that time. And, you know, looking now, it's a complete juxtaposition between where I am now and where I was. Um, you know, as you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, I'm married. I'm expecting my wife's due in four weeks. I've got the world's best dog. I've got great family and support network. Um, I've got a good job. I live in a cool area of the country. Um, life's good. Like it's, and, and that's not to say that I don't have times where I get down and um, you know I revisit things that I don't care to revisit, but um, I think that there are a lot better times and I'm able to actually access emotions and, and recognize things that are great at a lot better pace than I was uh, before I got Willis. That's really good. Um, if you were to, if somebody were to come to you where you were at years ago mm -hmm. and struggling with the same things and they had been through a similar thing that you had been through or similar things, plural, I should say, mm -hmm. what kind of advice would you give them having lived through it? Um... Just continue to move forward, and by moving forward, um, you've got to seek out some kind of assistance and help. Um, we can't do it alone. We don't live in a vacuum, and unfortunately, we aren't able to, to sit in a dark room and repair ourselves. That's just not the way that it works. Um, I wish it was, because um, I'm not somebody that likes to, to go into a room and share with somebody like why I'm being bothered by certain feelings or what's keeping me up at night in terms of dreams. But at the end of the day, I'm not able to work through these things myself. And so what I would recommend to somebody is just continue to move forward, like always progress forward, 
whether that's talking to somebody, look for resources. Um, you're going to have times where you regress and you know, you're going to have times where you're not feeling great and you're going to be depressed. Um, but the idea is that you continue to inch forward and, and at the end, um, you'll see a noticeable difference and it's not dramatic in terms of, Oh, okay. You know, two days from now, a month from now, I'm a completely different person. Uh, it's much more incremental. It takes a long time. It's like, you know, trying to run a sub five minute mile or, you know, do something really incredible academically. You've got to work. You've got to work at it. And it's, it's your work in progress like anything else. And so um, that would be my recommendation is, um, number one, just keep moving forward. Talk to somebody. Keep talking to people. Um, do what makes you feel good. And, and honestly, get rid of the stress and, and the things that um, bring you down and the things that you can control that um, aren't making you feel good. Try and get rid of those, whether that's alcohol, um, toxic relationships, um, maybe an unhealthy work environment. If these are things that are turning you, turning you into somebody that you don't enjoy and that you don't recognize, and it's really causing you a lot of pain and you think it's causing you to regress, then start to get rid of these things if you can because I think, you know, I did kind of the same thing in, in a lot of different areas and uh, it helped a lot, so. Along those same lines, if you were to, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, if you were to give everybody in the world one treat, what would it be? Hmm. I know you've interacted with so many different types of people from, from around the world. Yeah. Well... I, I don't know if it would make sense to call it perspective. Um, it would be somewhere in the line of compassion and perspective in terms of being able to walk in somebody else's shoes. I think that's huge. I think that, and I am really bad at this. I am the person that is riding on the BART, which is a subway system in the Bay Area. Um, and somebody's taking up two seats and the kids throwing things and I'm getting irritated by them and maybe I don't understand the circumstances that are happening there. Maybe there's some crazy things. Maybe that person's father just died. You know, so I, I guess what I would say is if I wanted other people and other facets of life with other backgrounds and other perspectives, it would be for us to be able to see things through the lens of other people and walk in other people's shoes. And I think that it would eliminate or it would mitigate a lot of the issues that we currently have today in terms of people being um, very volatile with each other and very one-sided. And uh, I just think the, 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 there is an absolute need for people to be able to step outside themselves and look at things through a different lens. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as we spoke about earlier, that's, that's a big part of the reason why I started this podcast and why I, I, I asked you to be here today is to help people understand what it's like to be in your shoes and hopefully somebody listening can relate to it and it can help them in some way too because mm -hmm. we're I actually I, there was like a song we had to learn in kindergarten um, oddly enough and the whole chorus of it was we're, we're all different but the same and if we could just get outside <laughs> of ourselves a little bit yeah. um and see the way somebody else is living or what they're going through it, it really does change everything. And it's tough. I don't know what the answer is for something like that because we have these incredible tools in our possession to stay connected with each other and, and access information that we were never, never able to access before, yet in some ways it seems like we've regressed, and I don't know why, and I, I don't know. I hope we can get to the point where we can use technology and information uh, for good and, and we can start to to become a little bit more compassionate uh, and better understand each other. Me too. Me too. Right now it seems like so much of social media has to do with, well, look at how grand and amazing my life is mm. instead it's of... It's a highlight like, reel. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, okay, so what if we used it for something a little bit different? Yep, absolutely. And people become, you know, on the other side, when it gets ugly, people become a lot more entrenched in their own ideas and I'm a big uh, proponent of, I think that people go to social media for affirmation, not information, which is unfortunate because as people, we should always strive to be evolving and continuing to grow and accessing new information and challenging our own ideas and opinions. 
And even though we have the ability to do that that we've never had before, I think that we push back on that. And I think that we look for that affirmation. So, Thank you so much for being here today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everybody that, I've, like I told you initially, I, I like to interview people that are as humble as you are because I feel like you have the most extraordinary stories. Um, and... And you don't have to agree with me on that at all. <laughs> but um, just thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And, you know, like I said before, I am um, I mean it when I say that, like, I'm not sure what my life would be today. But I know that I am where I am today because of the Knoll family and Labs for Liberty. And what they are doing is, an, is absolutely incredible. They're changing lives. Um, they're helping veterans through really remarkably tragic scenarios, whether it's physical disabilities or mental disabilities, and they're getting them back to the point where they're able to reintegrate society, be with their families, be productive citizens. So um, I would definitely just kind of um, really encourage everybody to, if you haven't heard about Labs for Liberty, do a little bit of research, um, Google them, look into them, donate. Um, you know, email Joan if you want more information. They're a great organization. So thanks for having me.